Good morning. It's great to see you. A real warm welcome. My name's James, lead the team here. If you're, if you're our guest, you're so very, very welcome. It's great to see everyone else as well. We are continuing our series that we're in at the moment, Move. I think we're in like part eight or something now. And uh, if you've got a Bible with you, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians, kind of chapters eight and nine, and, and we'll jump around to a few other places as well. This series that we're doing, we've said this week after week, I think it's just important to just keep reminding ourselves of what, of what we're doing and why we're doing this. Really feel God's spoken to us kind of prophetically. And so we're wanting to do two things. We're wanting to ask him to make a move, to pour himself out. Goodness knows our nation needs a move of God. And at the same time, we are wanting to make moves of our own. We want to move to align ourselves with God. We want to ensure that right across the life of our church, there is good health and multiplication. We want to be a church that honors God, that is shaped exclusively, not by the world we live in, but by the word of God. We want to see the church built and we want to see the kingdom of God advance. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, this is Paul speaking, verse 7. We want to be a, a church like this. But as you excel in everything, in faith. We want to be a church that excels in faith, full of faith. As we excel in speech, we want to be those who, who speak the truth, who speak well, who speak well of one another. We want to excel in that. We want to excel in knowledge. We want to know more of the goodness, more of the glory of God. As you excel in all earnestness, we want to be those who, who take what we do and how we live very seriously and pursue God with everything we've got. And in our love for you, who doesn't want to be a church that excels in love? We want to be those who love God and love people and love others. See that also you excel in this act of grace. Paul's here talking, this act of grace is the act of giving. The context of these verses is that uh, Paul is encouraging the church in Corinth to be a generous church. A few verses earlier in chapter 8, he talks about a church in Macedonia that even though they're in extreme poverty and facing severe tests... Even despite of all those things, they have an abundance of joy that overflows into a wealth of generosity. And Paul's desire is that the church in Corinth would equally overflow out of an abundance of joy in generosity. He wants them to excel in that. It's going to be up front with you. We want to excel in that too. For over 40 years, this church has done just that. Excelled in generosity. We are sitting literally in the goodness of and the result of the exceeding generosity of God and of people. This church's history has been marked by exceeding generosity at every stage. Last year we took up an offering and we gave away over half of it, £30,000 just to work in international justice mission. Again, exceeding generosity, we wanted to give it away. And we don't want to just want to take this for granted. We want to continually press more into God. And we want to align ourselves with his will. And we want to see what we have here multiplied again and again and again. We want to sow well so that we would reap well. Flick over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is a biblical principle. You, you reap what you sow. Now, we know this to be true. Just think physically for a moment. You know this to be true. If you fill yourself up with junk food, hey, your body suffers as a result. 
Put junk in, junk comes out. Put good stuff in, well, generally speaking, good stuff comes out. You reap what you sow. And what's true physically is also true spiritually. If you've got your Bible, flick over to Galatians chapter 6. It should hopefully come on the slide. Verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. You reap what you sow. In the previous chapter of Galatians, in chapter 5, Paul says the quality of our fruits will be determined by the depth of our roots. And he says, drive the gospel, drive, make sure you've got good roots in God, drive the gospel deep down into you so well. And in Galatians chapter 5, he says, you will reap goods, you will reap the fruit of the Spirit. This is a biblical principle, reap what you sow. It's basically what the book of Proverbs is all about. There are images of farmers who who sow seed, who sow it intentionally in this season so that in the next one, they will get a good harvest. They will reap well. You sow, so you reap. Now, it's not a definitive rule. It's not if you do this, then this will definitely happen. But it's a biblical principle. Sow well, you reap well. This is not a contradiction to the gospel. This is actually how we apply the gospel. See, the gospel is that God gives you forgiveness immediately. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. It's a free gift of grace from God that you ask him for forgiveness. And immediately, not based on anything you've done, but everything he's done, he gives you forgiveness. He makes you alive now in Christ. The gospel is free. But the way that God then begins to work change in your life is by getting you to sow seeds that will produce good fruit. In other words... You want to grow and change and and move forward in the things of God. You need to make moves. You need to do the things that God says in the way that God says them. You need to fill yourself up so much with the things of God. Put the things of God deep in you that the things of God come out of you. So well to reap well. And if you do that, the biblical principle is essentially you will grow. And if you don't, if you never give yourself to the things of God, if you never do the things that God says in the way he says, you're probably not going to grow. It's kind of a biblical principle. You reap what you sow. And we can apply this to all, area of our, all areas of our lives. And in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul applies it to our finances. Now, we need to be really clear on a few things as we talk about money. First thing is this. God does not need our money. All right? It's real clear we get this straight. God doesn't need our money. It all comes from him anyway. Haggai 2 verse 8 says, The, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of the hosts. It's all his. Psalm 24 verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Everything, all of it, everything we own, everything we have, it's all his. We're just stewards. And stewardship is the biblical understanding that you don't really own anything. Ultimately, at a big level, God owns everything. And if God made it and we have access to it, then we're a steward. All of our money is really just on loan with us. We, we don't take it with us. I, I'm yet to walk down Sidcup High Street seeing the funeral hearses because we've got a number of funeral directors on the high street and frequently see them pretty much every day a funeral hearse is going down. I'm yet to see a removal van following the funeral hearse with all of their stuff. It don't happen. Don't take it with us. It's all just on loan for us. And God doesn't need our money. And yet the instruction given throughout Scripture is to give our money. 
In the Old Testament, it's to give to the, what's called the Levitical priesthood. It's this idea of presenting your offerings to God, the, the first fruits. It's where we get the idea of tithe from. 10% of everything in the Old Testament, 10% of everything that you had, that you owned, that you earned, was to give to God. It was to come and lay it all before him and put it at the feet of the, into the storehouse. In a New Testament context, that storehouse, we still give to God. We're no longer under law, but now under grace. And so we still give of the first of what we have. And that storehouse is not the Levitical priesthood. It's now the local church of which you're part of. But if God doesn't need our money, why is there the instruction there to give? Well, simply put, and this is really important to get this if you're a follower of Jesus. This is a discipleship issue. It's an issue of what it is to follow Jesus. Now, be clear. God's not short on our money. He doesn't need it. I love the story, I think, Matthew 17 in the New Testament, where Peter's worried about a tax bill. And Jesus sends him fishing, and he catches a fish with a gold coin in his mouth. It kind of forever removes the idea that the mission has financial needs that Jesus can't fulfill. All right? He always can, and he always does, and he always does provide. God doesn't need our money, but the giving of his people is the means by which he pursues his mission on the earth. It's the means by which he releases his abundance, by which he, how, he multi, how he blesses and multiplies things. And it's a means, not exclusively the only means, but it's a means by which we demonstrate our faith and grow in God. And the best biblical example I can think of is the little boy with the five loaves and the two fish. You know, this feeding of the 5,000, 5, the little kid with the Hebrew happy meal who turns up with his five loaves and his two fishes and God doesn't need those five loaves and those two fishes see what if that little boy had only had one loaf and and one fish what would have happened well exactly the same thing it's got nothing to do with it God could have taken one crumb and one fish fin and still done exactly the same thing it was not about the size of the Hebrew happy meal it was the fact that actually he laid it all out before God you see it's got nothing to do with the amount of money you bring this is why it's a discipleship issue The point is, is that you place it all in the hands of Jesus, whether you have a lot or you have a little. You see, the little boy with those five loaves and two fishes, he said, here's everything I have. Use it. I know it's not much, but use it as you see fit Jesus. And as he did that, Jesus then multiplies this thing out and everybody gets fed. Here's here's where we're at. New community. Our goal, our aim is that every single person who calls new community their home, if, if you're just checking this out, if you're not part of a church, you, somehow, you need to work this out for yourself. But every single person, our aim, every single person who calls new community their home participates in this, excelling in this gift of grace, not because we have some financial targets to meet. It's got nothing to do with that. But because we want to see healthy, maturing, growing followers of Jesus. And talking about money in our culture is really, really uncomfortable. Some of you are squirming in your seats. It's super uncomfortable. And some of you are thinking, I knew it. First week we come, I knew it would all be about money. Here we are, standing there. You can check our archives. About every two years we do this. You just chose a bad day for you. (laughs) Actually, I don't believe in coincidences. I chose the right day for you. Because this is a discipleship issue. You see, talking about money in our culture is really uncomfortable because it's a real-life practical discipleship issue. It confronts us in a very real and a very practical way with the question, where am I going to place my trust? What or who am I going to put my faith in? 
And that's why it's a discipleship issue, because it's really easy to sing, Jesus, here I am, take me, all I have, I give to you. And when it confronted with something like our money, oh, it takes on a very different meaning. And this is why this is seriously important. This is why it's a discipleship issue, because am I going to take God at his word and trust him, or am I going to trust what the world says? See, Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 9, he says, give generously. And then in verse 8, he says, and you will have sufficiency in all things. It's like, are you going to trust God who says, I'm Jehovah Jireh. I'm the Lord who provides. I am the one who's going to provide for you in every moment, in everything. Do you trust me? Like Malachi 3, literally God says, tithe and test me and see if I'm faithful to you. He literally says that. Try it out. You don't think you can trust me? Tithe, give it, and I will Come good for you. I will provide for you. And we can sort of think, oh, I'm not really sure I can uh, and afford to give or afford to tithe. I mean, maybe a little donation every now and again, but can I really afford? And the word of God says, no, literally, you cannot afford not to. This is a fundamentally a question of where do, am I putting my trust? And this is why we feel really uncomfortable talking about money, because in a very real practical way, it gets right to the root of faith and trust and what it means to follow Jesus. Now, for sure, Some of us are uncomfortable in hearing a pastor talking about money because we've had some really bad experiences of it. Like lots of churches do really, really terribly well with this. I mean, badly. Like some don't talk about it ever. That's not a good idea. And some talk about it way too much. Like, you know know the drill. You've been there. Some of you have been to those. It's all about that. Give, 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 give. And churches don't do, haven't handled this very well. But here's the thing. We cannot allow bad experiences to shape our theology nor can we allow them to shape our lives. Well, I've had a bad experience. I've had like, somebody's took all my, I'm never going to do it again. No, we can't allow bad experiences to shape our lives. We need to align ourselves with Jesus Christ. And Jesus talk, talked more about money than he did about big things like heaven and hell. We probably don't speak about it enough. I joked earlier, every two years, 2016, last time I spoke about it, 2014, the one before that, and 2012, the one before that. We've got a little pattern going that we need to break. And Jesus talked about it as much as he did because money exposes, when you talk about it, it exposes the idols of our heart. See, Paul writes these words to the church in Corinth. And Corinth is a city full of idols. I mean, they are obsessed with sex, with money, and with power. And we live in a culture very, very similar to Corinth. We're obsessed with the same thing, sex all the time, power, and money is a big issue for us. There's a guy called Simon Fox, who's a member of our church, who's currently cycling his way around the world, in the, you know, raising money for IJM. And he's in Laos, I spoke to him just this week. And in Thailand, last week, he tweeted a picture a couple of weeks ago, he said, this picture here, Thailand is hot and full of temples, the exact opposite of the UK, no heat, no temples. And quick as a flash, Tim Windsor-Brown, who's on our team here, tweets back this picture and says, our temples just look a little different. See, the UK is full of temples. They just look a little different. Now, we might not physically kneel before the god of Aphrodite, who's the goddess of beauty anymore, but man alive, are we obsessed with body image in this nation. We bow before that idol all the time. We might not kind of burn incense to Artemis anymore but we sacrifice all sorts of things on the altar of success so that we might gain more success we'll give everything we can to it our culture is full of idols and money is probably the biggest one it's why Jesus says in Luke 16 no servant can serve two masters 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You see, Paul wants the Corinthian church to excel in giving primarily because he wants them to excel in serving and following God. And where your money is, that's where your heart is. Where you put your treasure, that's what you delight in. So let's just uh, spend these next few moments unpacking this a little bit more. I just want to look at three ways where I can, I really think that when it comes to money, that we can excel as a people. And the first is this. Recognize that money has the strong potential to be an idol. Not for me, I'm fine. No, it does. Money has the strong potential. I'm not saying it definitely is, but I'm saying it has the strong potential to be a very big idol in our lives. See, money, let's be clear on money. Money's not evil, all right? Money's not evil. There's nothing wrong with money. Money is very, very much neutral. It's love of money, not money that's the issue. Money can be used and frequently is used for all sorts of excellent things, in all sorts of excellent ways. Money's not a problem. Money, in many ways, is a blessing from God. I don't know who said it, but someone very wise once said, money makes a great servant, but a terrible master. It really does. Used wisely in the way that God designed it to be used, money is an excellent tool. You can do all sorts of really good things with money. But here's where the danger lies. And this is what Jesus is pushing into in Luke 16. He says, our tendency as human beings, is to take the good things that God has given us, and they are good things, and turn them into ultimate things. So we do this with everything. We turn, take the good thing, the blessing of family, and we turn it into an ultimate thing. Oh, it's all about this. Or the good thing of, of, the, of wealth or material thing, whatever it is, and we turn it all into that. Or the good thing of sex, and, and we turn it all into an ultimate thing. And when we do that, we turn them into idols. We turn good things, we corrupt them in our hearts and we turn them into idols. And in our hearts, they become like a God. They become a replacement for the God because they become the center of our lives. That's what an idol is. It becomes the the thing that we think of all the time, the thing that drives us, the thing that motivates us, the the reason we make the decisions that we make. And they become an idol because we think that they can give us significance and security and safety and even fulfillment. You see, biblically speaking, idolaters do three things with their idols. They love them, they trust them, and they obey them. And this is where money becomes an idol in the heart. How do you know? How do you know whether you're in danger of loving, trusting, and obeying the idols that are not of God? Well, think about it like this. Lovers of money are those people who daydream and fantasize about having more money. They daydream and just think about new ways of, of making money, new possessions to buy. I'm not talking about the businessman who's got a skill of making money and goes, how do I creatively tap into these God-given potential that God has given me to generate more income? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the person who goes, if I won a million pounds, what would I do? If someone just gave me the Euro Millions 148 million pounds tickets just as a little gift, what would I do with it? I'd do it all the time. Like, I'd do it all the time. What am I doing? Catching myself. It's not a reality. It's just a fantasy land that isn't real. See, lovers of money are those who just fixate on those things all the time. Who are kind of perhaps looking on at jealousy with those who have more than you do. Why do they have all that? I wish I had more of that. Look at their life. That seems, oh, 
That's what a lover of money be. That's where it begins. And if you don't kill it, it becomes big. And trusters of money, they're those who think that they have control of their lives. The life that they have is safe and secure because of their wealth, because of the size of their bank account or the size of their savings or their pension pot or their ISA or anything else that you might want to put your trust in. So think, actually, because I've got this security, because I've got this kind of huge bank account that I can tap into, we're going to be okay. Anything can happen and we'll be okay. And so we lovers of money fixate on this in order so that we can have this, so we can trust in it. And here's the thing. Because we love and we trust our idols, we end up obeying them. We end up obeying them. We end up serving them because it becomes all about that. And make no mistake, money is a really very powerful master. And Jesus is absolutely straight on this because if you're a Christian... You love, trust, and obey something or someone else. You either serve God or you serve something else, and you can't do both, Jesus says. If you give your life to Jesus, then you give him everything, and you follow him and everything that he says. And sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, we need to remind ourselves that what he says is good for us, that his commands are good for us. We need to remind ourselves that following God and doing what he says in the way he says it, it never does us any harm. And so when we're kind of juggling how, I'm not sure that God says that. He's quite clearly spoken about that. He quite clearly makes this an issue, whatever it is, particularly if it's money, but it could be anything else, a surrender of any area of your life. It's like, I'm not sure that that's the best for me. No, 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 no. If God says it, it is absolutely the best for you. And we've got to remind ourselves again and again and again that God following him and trusting him and doing everything that he says in the way he says it never brings us any harm. And so when something jars a little bit, and money is one of those areas that always jars a little bit, it's worth asking, why, why is this jarring? God says this, why do I feel, ooh, instinctively against this? Why? And when we feel like that, when there's that little moment of jarring, it's like, oh, I'm not sure it's usually a sign that there's an idol lurking somewhere or there's a sin that needs to be dealt with. That's what it is because if God speaks and God is good all the time and everything he says is good and we react as if it's not good, there's no wrong with what he says. It's usually an indication there's an idol lurking somewhere. And the idol of money runs deep into our hearts if we're not careful. And it affects us whether we have a lot of money or we don't really have any of it at all. See, the truth is, most of us often don't recognize the influence of money over our lives. And so it's really helpful to kind of think, has this got a hold on me? Has this got a grip on me? What does it actually look like? And a kind of idol of money manifests itself in all sorts of different ways, and there are all sorts of different symptoms. Symptom number one is is worry and anxiety over money. And this is true whether you've got lots of it or not. The rich fear losing it all and the poor fear not having enough. And everybody in the middle kind of worries about, do I have enough? Do I have more? If you worry or anxious about money, there's a little clue there that it might be a little idle in your heart. Second clue is stinginess. Kind of lack of generosity, being really stingy with it. There's a, a fear that means I don't have enough to meet my own needs, so I can't be generous with it. Or there's a feeling that I kind of need to hold on to all my money. Like I can't be, whoa, no, no, I need to hold it because this, oh. It's a sure sign that there's an idol of trust. Another sign is discontentment. Are you discontent about where you're at at the moment, always wishing that you had somebody else's lifestyle or somebody else's possessions or somebody else's house or job or whatever it is, just the discontentment where I am at the moment with how I'm doing, I need something more, is a little sign of perhaps there's an idol of our heart there. Another indicator is impulse buying. 
or kind of coveting and greed, the inability to resist the desire to purchase something that's not needed. I just, just need it. I just want it. I just want it. It's a kind of idol of the heart there. Or the desire to have more than I already have. Like, I don't need another coffee maker, but that one is better than the one I've got. So I want it. Or the latest phone. Or the, whatever it is, I don't need it. And if 15 years ago you'd said to me, you need a phone that does this, 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 and this, I would have laughed at you because 15 years ago it didn't do any of those things and now I must have it. There's an idol there lurking somewhere. Another kind of indicator for us of there's an idol of money is a consistent financial lack. Is there a consistent financial lack in your life? You see, often this affects the poor and the rich alike because many people kind of just falsely believe, I'm not greedy, I'm not greedy. I just need 10% more and all my financial problems will go away. I don't want loads. I'm not asking for loads more, just a little bit more, because if I was just in that next category up, then I would be okay. And the reality is everybody in that category thinks if I'm just in the next one, I'll be okay. In reality, the more money you have, the more you spend, and the same issues you have. If you don't take anything else away from today, take this. It's not God's desire that you would be marked by these things. He does not want you to be anxious. He does not want you to be stingy or discontent or to be out of control when it comes to your finances. You see, here's the thing. Idols always promise lots and deliver nothing. They always promise lots. Oh, if it would, and then they don't deliver. So how do you dethrone an idol? How do you sort this out? How do we sort this out? Well, the answer is not, hey, be better. Sort yourself out. The idol of money can't just be dealt with by saying, change your behavior and you'll be fine. Deep idols like money have to be dealt with at a deep heart level. And there is only one way to change at a heart level and that's through faith in the gospel. Everything else is morality and it does nothing, doesn't help you. It's only through the gospel. You see, right after telling us to give in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 7, Paul says, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul just dives straight into the gospel. He says, look at the generosity of Christ in the gospel, how he poured out his wealth for you. He did not have to. He could have stayed with eternal riches in heaven. He did not need to step down, and yet he did. He was not stingy with his wealth. He poured it all out for you. And so here's the thing, an antidote to stinginess is to look at Jesus' generosity. Antidote to where you're looking to finances and money for your security, when you're tempted to look and think, if I just had more money, then I would be okay. The gospel says, no, you don't have to. Look to Jesus because the cross proves God's care for you and gives you security. It proves beyond any doubt because it says in Hebrews 13 verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, in the cross, the promise that comes to you if you're in Christ is that God will never leave you, never forsake you and you are never gonna be left on your own thinking, how do I provide in any situation and circumstances? So we don't need to trust our finances and having loads of money in the bank in order and then I'll be okay. No, I'm gonna be okay because my life is hidden in Christ and he will never leave me nor forsake me. The answer is not, well, just stop worrying about, stop looking at your bank account. The answer is look more at Jesus. Antidote to look to envy works exactly the same way. You don't have to envy somebody else's money or their lifestyle because when you look at the cross, 
When you are shaped by the gospel, you recognize that Jesus' love and salvation gives you a remarkable status, one that money cannot buy. There is nothing in this world that can get you what you have been given in the, at the cross. It's all a free gift of grace. So there's no kind of thing of, oh, I just wish, I just need, I just need. No, everything that you could ever possibly need. Look at Jesus. And here's the thing. What you look at, you become. Endlessly just keep looking at the house down the road. Desiring it more, you become. I mean, you don't literally become a house. That would be really weird. <laughs> but you just kind of turn, turns in your heart. You, you fix your eyes on Jesus and you become more like him. See, money cannot save you from a tragedy. Can't give you control in a chaotic world. Only God does, and only God can. See, what breaks the power of money over us is not trying harder to be a better Christian. It's deepening your understanding of the salvation of Jesus Christ, of what you have in him. So I don't need these things. If they come to me, wonderful, but I don't need these things for affirmation and security and joy and pleasure because of Jesus. And you know, some of us, the first step to looking at Jesus is to repent of the things we have been looking at. So, God, I'm sorry I looked at that, and I'm sorry I'm putting my love of that and my trust in that. I'm turning to you. And repentance is not a dirty word. It's not like the one-time thing you do, and then we move on now. Never feed again. You know, unless you're Jesus, repentance should be a daily part of your life. Because unless you're Jesus, you're making mistakes on a daily basis. And so repentance should be part of it. It shouldn't be an unusual thing. I'm all repentant. No. God, I'm sorry I looked at that again. Sorry I allowed my, my trust in that. I want to look to you again. I want to put my trust in you again. You see, excelling in the grace of giving means recognizing that money has the potential to be an idol and then dethroning that idol by pushing more into the gospel. So recognize it's an idol. Second thing, how we excel in this gift of giving is by sowing it well. Sow your money well. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So what does it look like to sow bountifully? Well, a big part of that's giving. We'll come to that in a moment. But a key here, and this is really important, is seek wisdom. Seek wisdom from the word of God and from others who are further on than you in this journey. See, the biblical principle, you reap what you sow. So sow well. It basically says, be wise. Be wise with your money. And the Bible frequently contrasts the wise and the foolish. The wise man recognized that what I do now, how I live now, the decisions I make now, affects what comes next, both eternally but also in this life. You know when you're a kid and you do that thing with your thumb where you put it over the moon like that and you think, my thumb made the moon disappear. My thumb's bigger than the moon. And it's that moment where you think, it, genuinely think it is. Well, maturity and wisdom teaches you that no, it's not. Your thumb is just a lot closer to you than the moon. The moon is still massive and your thumb is still tiny. And that's what wisdom is. It's looking at that in the future and going, that is way bigger than this. And so I'm going to live with that in mind rather than this. You see, the wise man lives with that in mind over this. The foolish man makes decisions. Oh, my thumb is bigger than the moon. I'll make decisions now for short-term joy with long-term pain and consequences. Why does anybody ever have an affair? For short-term joy. What does it bring? Long-term pain and misery. No one would do it if they thought more on that than on this. Same with buying things that you can't afford. Buy it on credit. Wow, amazing. And then misery untold for however long because you can't really afford it. See, the wise man basically looks at that and says, in light of that, I'm going to make decisions right here now. And the foolish man lives in the present with no recognition of what's to come. Wise man makes wise decisions, recognizing that if I sow well now, even if it's hard, 
Even if it's different to what everybody else is doing, the long-term consequences are far better. The wise man builds his house on the rock versus on the sand. Like we always talk about that story. We all know it from a little kid. But here's the thing. It's easy to build your house on the sand because you build it really quick. And the guy building the sandcastle is looking going, what are you doing? I've already finished. And the wise man knows, no, 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 I'm building this even though it's harder and it's going to take longer because when the rain comes and the flood comes, I'm going to be all right and you're not. The wise man builds with that in mind rather than this. So use your money wisely. Focus on the gospel. Seek wisdom. Invest in eternity. Practically, what's that look like? Well, it looks a bit like save some of it. Spend some of it and give some of it. Principle of 10, 10, 80 is really helpful. Give 10% away, save 10%, live on 80. And if you can't do that, you need to make some adjustments. It's wise to save. Honestly, saving is a good thing. But save in a way that means you're still trusting God and not your savings. Save without anxiety. Don't save because of fear of the future. I've got to get all this because what happens if something bad happens? No, no, no. Save as an act of stewardship so that you can invest later on in life in something eternally worthwhile. I'll save now so when an opportunity comes to sow it, I'll sow it well. I've got something to sow. Save some of it. Spend it. Most of us don't have a problem with spending it. But how and what we often do. I once heard somebody say, only spend on what you need, not on what you want. Which seems like really good advice. Until you think about what you actually need is actually only very, very limited. And what you want is actually really very subjective. I only need air. Food and water. That's literally it. I don't need anything else. Now, some of you might argue you need clothes, and I'm very grateful you're wearing them. (laughs) So, okay, we can add that in. But you don't need anything else. You just want it. So most of the time, when it comes to spending it, we're dealing with wants. So a key to spending is growing the gospel. We don't follow a set of rules. We're under grace. Not under law, where you have to and you can't do and you can do. No, you have to do this. No, we're under grace. doesn't mean we're free to sin, but it does mean we're free to live and we're free to enjoy it. Some of the godliest people I know are really actually quite wealthy. If God's blessed you with things, don't feel guilty about it. I'm really sorry. Don't be weird about it. Don't be weird about the, enjoying the good things that God's given us. We've got some friends. I've got some friends of ours who are going to the Caribbean for the Easter holidays. Do you know where we're going? Orpington. <laughs> if you're fortunate enough to be going to the Caribbean, well, as long as you haven't like, got in stupid amounts of debt just to keep up appearances with the Joneses, I don't, it's unfair on the Joneses. I'm not sure they're doing anything wrong. <laughs> but as long as you haven't gotten into loads of debt, then go and enjoy it. And if Orpington is like a dream, I would love to go there. We just can't afford it then hey, remind yourself of this. I'm not living for this. I'm living for that world. You see, the wise man recognizes that that is bigger than this. And I'm not going to make unwise decisions for short-term joy that are going to bring long-term pain and consequences. And I'm going to remind myself that with an eternal biblical perspective, one day the new heavens and the new earth are going to be glorious to explore for all time for absolute free. How amazing is that? So all the best of the Caribbean and Orpington is going to be found in the new heavens and the new earth. There might be not be so much Orpington, but the best of it will be there. And I'm going to live in light of that rather than this. See, however much you've got, a lot or a little, prioritize Jesus. Prioritize other people. My Caribbean friends are some of the most generous I know. Prioritize the mission. Live within your means. 
which means avoid debt like the plague. Like it's a curse. Avoid it like the plague. And if you're in it, get out of it and stay out of it. And if you need help to get out of it, ask. We've got debt advice service here in this church. Come and ask. Get out of it. Get, it's, don't, don't be proud. I can't tell them. I can't admit. I can't. I'll tangle it myself. No, you won't, because otherwise you already would have done. Get some help. Don't be a hoarder. Don't be a penny pincher. Don't be a cheapskate. Honestly, it doesn't honor God. Like it really doesn't. Don't be a penny pincher. God is so generous. He's so extravagant. I can't share anything with you. I need it all. No, well, no, I'm not sure it honors God. I'm not saying be ridiculous, but don't be a cheapskate. Guard against envy. Guard against covetousness. And above all, honor God. Above all, in everything, honor God. And the best way to do that is the third thing is give generously. See, at the end of the day, the best way to avoid making money your God or your idol is to give it. Your generosity is a measure of your treasure. You see, our generosity is a measure of our understanding of the central message at the core of our faith, that God gave his only son that we might have life, that God has been so incredibly generous to us that our only response is one of generosity full stop. So give generously, sow it, and watch what God does with it, because he will multiply it. Back to John 6 and the the feeding of the 5,000 for a moment. See, Jesus takes that little boy's lunch, five loaves and two fish, and he blesses it and he distributes it to the disciples. They're hungry. It's 5,000 blokes. There's probably 20,000 people there. Five loaves, two fish. And as they gave it away, it multiplies to the point that it was enough to feed every person in the crowd and still leave 12 basketfuls left over. I mean, this is a mind-boggling story on so many levels, but it's got a profound lesson for us. This miracle demonstrates the pattern of multiplication. You put it in the hands of Jesus, and as it's distributed, it multiplies. You see, people have such the wrong idea about this miracle. They think that Jesus took the bread and the fish, and suddenly there's this great big pile of it, and everybody kind of came and helped themselves. No, no, no. As they took, it says, as they took it out of his hands and gave it to others, it multiplied. Can you imagine being that little boy? What did you do today? I gave away my lunch. What do you do that for? I sent you with that. It took me ages to make that for you. No, but no, but look what Jesus did with it. Can you imagine being that little boy? Look what, I gave everything I had. Look what Jesus did with it. Wow. Can't tell me that he didn't take one of the 12 baskets home. (laughs) Mom, look. (laughs) Wow. What he gave, God, Jesus multiplied it. You see, we sow. And as we sow, nothing that I sow, with that in mind over this, nothing that I sow with that in mind am I going to regret. I might not see the multiplication of it directly, but I promise you, there is nothing that I sow now to the kingdom of God that I give to Jesus that with an eternal perspective in mind, I am going to regret. I think I'm way more in danger of regretting that I didn't sow more than the other way around. I don't think I'm going to stand at heaven's door and go, Man, that was a waste of all my effort, putting all that stuff that I earned that I didn't bring with me into the kingdom of God that I can now enjoy for all eternity. I think there's probably a danger I might go the other way. You see, we sow and Jesus multiplies and the kingdom advances. Sowing to God's purposes doesn't just produce more, it produces better. We don't sow so that we get more back of the same. When we sow with, with that in mind, we reap what it says in Galatians 6, 8, an eternal life from the Spirit. 
We don't just get more. There's no guarantee of cash riches. We might. We might not. But that's not the point. We sow trusting Jesus, who says this in Luke 6.38, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. Wow. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I know this. As I trust Jesus, as I sow well, I am going to reap well. And we will do that individually and corporately. What it looks like might not be what I imagined or what I desired, but it will be for our good because as we trust God above all else, as we put it into his hands and as we say, multiply it to your glory, he does. See, if we haven't sown it, God can't multiply it. You haven't sown it, God can't multiply it. You know, some people say, if it multiplies, then I'll give it away. And God says, no, 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 give it away and it will multiply. Just in my hands, not yours, says God. And this is a discipleship issue. We're going to end with this because there are really, to be honest, if you're a Christian, there are two ways to look at your money. You kind of view it as mine. And so giving, which is commanded in the Bible, you, you, you can't get away from that. Giving kind of feels like a tax. It's not fair. I've got to give some. I don't like tax. It's not good. I mean, if you, that's, that's like all may well be true. Other bit of good advice is pay your tax. Right? They'll get you in the end. But if we look at it as it's mine, it's going to feel, the giving is going to feel like a tax. If we look at it as God's, and I'm a steward, and so I'm going to sow it well in the present so that in the future it might multiply, that changes everything. You see, what we do with our money says something about our view of God. And the reason generosity looks so beautiful in people, the reason why generous people are so beautiful is because it's so godlike. He's so generous. And this is why we want everyone involved. Not so we can meet our financial targets or anything like that. No one looks at the size of what you give. It's between you and God. Not so we're trying to, oh, we've got to do this and we've got to increase this and we've got to do that. No, no, no. We want everyone involved because we want to help people grow in God, to dethrone idols and have the joy of investing in something that eternally matters. At the end of the day, it's between you and God. But the point is this, says Paul, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This is why we want everybody involved, that you might abound in every good work. So I end with this. There are four steps in terms of giving, and each of us is somewhere on these steps. First step is step in and make a start. No matter how small, it doesn't matter. That first step begins the journey of giving. Step in and give for the first time. Now, some people in this room are just not able to. You don't earn any money. You're married to somebody who's not a Christian. You can't give their money away, and I wouldn't even advise it. It's an attitude fundamentally of the heart. Step in and honoring God. Step in and start. Second one is, for some of us, is to step up and give more regularly to commit to giving every month it's an act of obedience an act of discipleship it's an act of I'm going to increase in generosity so I've given once now I'm going to start trying to give more regularly or a little bit more third one is giving regularly up to 10% biblical concept of tithe grace doesn't lower the bar it raises it how tragic would we be saying the Old Testament has to do that and now because of grace because of Jesus well, we don't need to do as much no, grace is like wow I get to give it's not how much it's how much, do I should have, how much can I get away with giving? The fourth step for some of us who are already doing that is step beyond testing God in that sense. Malachi 3, tithe, test me. Give me more and see what I do. I'm going to sow it all out and God will multiply it. And that's regularly giving over 10% of your income. Lots of people in this church do that. It's a matter of all God. 
There are a whole load of ways to give. You think, how does that work? You heard some of it earlier. Right at the back at the guest point, got these little pieces of paper. I mean, we spend a lot of money on these. <laughs> Just some giving info. You can get one from the guest area. Where how to give, like really, like practically, standing order, account details, online, all that kind of stuff. God says, I'm after your heart. It's not about the size of what you give, it's about your heart. He knows, no one's looking. Are you sure? Is that all you can afford? No, that's never going to happen. All right, it's between you and God. We want to be a church that sows well to reap well. We want to be a generous people. We took an offering last year, I mentioned it earlier, gave over 30,000 pounds away to International Justice Mission. We're going to take another one in May. This time we're going to give it to church planting. We might never see, we might never see the reaping, but someone will because we're laying it all at Jesus' feet. We want to be a really generous people. So step in give.